Amen. As Jeff mentioned, it was not long ago I stood here as the members of this church echoed their amen to send me to train and participate in the ministry of preparation for ministry. And so it is a deep blessing to be able to expose you to God's word this morning. Would you open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 46? Psalm 46. This is what the word of the Lord says. Verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he's brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, burns the chariots with fire. Be still, know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. God's presence with his people makes them fearless in trouble, safe from their enemies, and unstoppable in their mission. Trouble is not uncommon in this life, never has been since the fall. In fact, it should be well expected. Though there are seasons where may, we may enjoy comfort and blessings, trouble is very sure to come our way. Jesus promises in John 16, 33, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus was wise. He is the word through whom all things were made. Jesus tells his disciples rightly, in the world, you will have trouble. Can you finish the verse, though? In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. See, the Bible is honest and candid about trouble and suffering. It's very plain. It's because God wrote it. God, who knows this world even more rightly than we do, of course, as its maker and sustainer. He's, he's very honest in his word about trouble and strife. Uh, Jesus, he's, he's someone who's acquainted with grief. The Son of God walked the earth as a man. But when the Bible talks about trouble and, and danger, just like Jesus with his disciples telling them they're going to have trouble, it's only talking about trouble to shift our focus back to God. God's goal in talking to us about trouble is to actually get our eyes off the trouble and to get our eyes back on God. Jesus isn't just complaining, he's shifting their focus. Even when Jesus is talking about self-denial, like Luke 14, you've got, you, you can't be my disciple unless you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. But that's just it. You deny yourself, you get me. You're focused on the reward. Don't look at what you're losing. Don't look at the trouble. 
Look at the reward, shifting our eyes, lifting our eyes. That's why we get together every week and do what we do. That's what separates the church from any institution in the world, is why we get together and what we do when we get together. We, we come here, and after the week you just had, you need to be in the same place as other Christians and celebrate amazing grace, unfailing love. We're going to read the Bible because we need some truth to handle what we've just experienced and what we're going into. We need to know about our great God. We need to know mine are the keys to this Zion city where I'm going to walk beside the king forever. That's what you need week to week. And that is the goal of Psalm 46, is to get your eyes up in trouble. Now, when we read about salvation from trouble and the power to face the impossible, these are not, the salvation is not an abstract con- concept. Paul Tripp shared with us this weekend at a conference I was at, he said, we're not saved by a system of redemption, we're saved by a redeemer. And this psalm introduces you to the God of your salvation and what he's like. And this is our psalm as Christians because in Christ, all the promises from God find their yes in him. And so we claim the promises of God because it is God himself who walked this earth, died as a payment for sin, rose from the dead to reconcile all kinds of people throughout all time to a relationship with himself where they can enjoy the blessings and the presence of God with them. And so, Psalm 46 is our song as God's people. He he mentions twice, the God of Jacob, our fortress. The, the, The fortress is where you defend from, and it's inaccessibly high being the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob is a reference to the specific relationship that God has. This is not just the idea of God. We are not saved by faith in the abstract. We are saved by God himself, the one who's been making promises from the very beginning and orchestrated a plan from before the foundation of the world to be with his people. So there's the main point. This is the goal of our time together in this passage today. I want you to leave church this morning with three indelible, undeniable convictions from the Word of God. There are three things that you are going to need to know real soon because of the nature of the world we live in, because of who our God is and who, who we are to Him. So there's three things you need to know this morning from this passage. First is God's nearness in trouble. Whatever's going on, God is, He's close by, He's near. He's not far off, He is near in trouble. Second is God's tendency to save. When God is near, he's not just disinterested in the trouble we're in. He's there to save. He's there working out a redemptive purpose in our trouble. This is a profound mystery that none of us understand, but God's ways are higher than our ways, and in his nearness to us in our trouble, his purpose is salvation. And the third is that it is God's power that is behind the spread of his worship. The the mission of God is empowered by God himself. So God is near to us in trouble, and he's a saving God. He is the God who saves when he's near us in trouble. And his power is what's behind his mission for us in the world and his purposes for creation itself. So with these truths, 
Psalm 46 revolutionizes how we respond to trouble. It changes how we respond to trouble by giving us something to stand on in trouble. It's a well-known human experience to respond to a problem with whatever reaction we've already practiced or seen repeated or decided on beforehand. See, we don't rise to our best when the pressure's on. You've probably experienced this at some point or another, that when the pressure's on and there's something that you already know how to do, suddenly the pressure, you just do whatever you've basically been trained to do. It's not an occasion for you to rise up under pressure. You often sink to what you know. We do, we practice. Let me prove this. Parents, at some point this week, probably this morning, your, your child did something, said something, broke something, and when you opened your mouth to address them, out of your mouth came your mother's words. And you thought, I am my mother. And for me, it's encouraging to be like my mother. I think she is an exemplary woman of faith. But it's creepy because I didn't plan to do that. It just came out. You just did it. You do, you do what you know. Psalm 46 is what we need to come out in trouble. That needs to be what just happens in our hearts. That needs to be the conviction that's already present when the pressure's on and trouble and the task seems impossible to overcome. God is near, God saves, and his power is with us. So let's look at these first three verses. When God seems far off, when trouble is all you see, you need to know in your bones that God's character is not wavering. That's why this first verse, he says God's a present help. But even before that, this is so critical. Look at the, look at the structure of this psalm. This comes to people who are in trouble, and the first word out of the mouth of the Holy Spirit to the writer of this psalm is God. God knows they're in danger and discouraged, so the first word he gives is God. You're worried about all the trouble. You're worried about the danger that's real, your actual threats on your life, bitter loss, an impossible task to overcome, and so God tells you about himself. This is exactly what we need. Because when you're in trouble, you're getting lied to. God's far off. He's not spoken about this. He's not going to help you. And even if he's near, he doesn't care. And you need this truth to combat that. It needs to be strong. It needs to be in you. It needs to be a firm conviction of your soul. That's why we're examining it today. So that you'll have it when you need it. So any sentence that begins with God is, whatever you finish that sentence with is what we call theology. You're describing God. You're talking about what he's like. So when Angela tells people my husband is, all of these wonderful things, she, that's, that's what we are doing about God when it's what we call our theology, what we describe about God. When you're in trouble, you need theology. You don't need primarily to be spared from hurt and pain. What you need, and I mean really need, is truth. I mean good biblical theology. And that's why God gives it to us when his people are in trouble. It's because all the lies are bad theology. Satan is a master of theology. You are, you're actually a master of theology. You're, you're really good at 
interpreting God based on what you're seeing here. We're, we take the world and we, we say, oh, because of what I see, this must be true about God. But it's actually supposed to be backwards because our God speaks. God just doesn't, doesn't just exist. God is and God speaks. This sets our God apart. God is a, he's a relational, he's a personal God. He's actually spoken. And so because he's revealed things about himself, we're not lost as to what he's like. We don't have to look at our circumstances and, and think that the fact that I'm in pain means something about God. I'm in pain, therefore God is far off. No, it's actually backwards for the Christian because God has spoken to us. God says, I am present help. I'm your refuge. I'm your strength. Therefore, when there's trouble, this is what you should believe. It goes backwards. We read God into our experience and we interpret our experience through the lens of what he's already told us is true, that he's our refuge and strength and he's present. So verse 2, for this very reason, because of what you already know, we will not fear. Verse 2 is, is put there like, um, because you know that the truth in verse 1 is true, then verse 2 is just a necessary implication of that. If God's there, then clearly we will not fear. So when we say we will not fear, oftentimes the question comes, but, but what if, and verse 2 and 3 answers, what if, though, though, though. You see that word over and over and over again. Though this happens, though this happens, though, though the mountains are removed into the heart of the sea, though the waters roar and foam, this is chaos. This is destruction. And this is the confidence of the Christian that we have something firmer to stand on than the ground whenever we're in trouble. God is refuge and strength. He's where we go to hide and be sustained. Power and confidence come from him. We are weak and frail and helpless in the storm, but our eternal, unchanging God meets us there as refuge and strength. So this is, I like thunderstorms, or I mean, I, I thought I liked thunderstorms until one day I went camping in Red River Gorge, Kentucky. It's very beautiful out there, and it was beautiful on this mountaintop campsite until a violent storm blew in, and I was in my little leaky backpack tent with rain pounding and wind pounding, threatening to wash me off of this ridge. And lightning strikes the tree right next to my head, and I'm thinking, I'm about to die because I decided to go camping this weekend. And I realized in that moment, getting wetter and wetter from the leaks in my tent, that I liked watching storms. <laughs> From the wind through the window of a house that's got a roof and walls and a foundation. And God is where we watch the storm from. He's a refuge. And when you think the storm's going to wash you away, remember that you're standing on something he can't, that the storm can't touch. The storm, however hard it is, cannot touch the unchanging character of God. There's nothing more variable than the weather. And God is nothing like it. He never moves. He's always new. He always saves. And he's always victorious in the trouble. God is a present help. And when I read that he's a present help in all of these times, I think of the fact that growing up 
as a kid, oftentimes you have so much confidence in your parents, you don't realize that they're just as lost as you are more often than not. And I, I just had such confidence in my parents that whatever distress I was in, if either one of them were nearby, things were fine. Building's on fire. It's okay. Dad's here. That's, that's, what it, that's the, the kind of confidence that a child occasionally is meant to have in their parents. So that's why the attribute of God that is easiest to question in trouble is his nearness. Because if God's near us, then that, that's the argument here. If God's near, we won't fear. So that's why your sinful nature, that's why our enemy really wants you to doubt this fact that God is near. But God doesn't have to prove his nearness to us by sparing us from everything. He's already told us what he's like. So that when we experience trouble, we have a promise we can stand on. If you've read the book Pilgrim's Progress, Pilgrim is in a castle called Despair and he's locked up. And he finds in his, in his shirt a key that he's had the whole time to this cage that he's in. And the key's called Promise. That's, that's what the Christian has. We always have, whatever we're in, a promise that we can take a hold of that our circumstances can't touch. God is independent from our circumstances, but he's near to us with promises and power always. So I find verses 2 and 3 comforting because, because, only because they're negated in the previous verse. Th these are, this is a circumstance that the psalmist is saying God is near in. And this is a terrifying circumstance to me as a land-dwelling mammal. Because the sea, the ocean, is not exactly my scene. See, I, I, have, I have feet and lungs, and those are useless in the ocean. In fact, they're more of a liability than an asset when you're in the water. They're, they're absolutely useless. What's more unpredictable than a raging sea? But, I mean, the ocean doesn't even have to be raging for me to want to stay away from it. Even if it's just sitting there, I am going to die without technological intervention. Like, there has to be a boat, or I have to train really hard to be able to swim to something I can put my feet on, or I really will die. So, I much prefer mountains. Mountains, mountains are just the best. They're dry. They're hard. They're elevated. My feet, my lungs, they're, they're built for mountains. And think about what it's like on top of a mountain. You can see everything. Don't you just feel untouchable and stable on top of a mountain? Nothing is going to come to you without you seeing it coming from a long ways away. Not even a storm. You can see weather coming in and think, oh, here in about 10 minutes it's going to rain, so I'm going to set up my camp. That's what you can do from a mountain. Now imagine that mountain being chucked into the ocean. This is terrifying. I don't like this at all. So when the earth gives way, see, this is, this is scary because the earth is a reasonably reliable foundation. Except when it's not. I mean, ask your friends in Florida, sometimes in your backyard, there's a hole that opens up and nobody knew it was there. Or think about earthquakes, volcanoes. It can change life as we know it for millions in an instant when the earth proves as unstable as the sea. So when those moments happen, spiritually and physically, we can believe that God's character is not like those things. 
never changes. He's always there, and he's always good. This happened very physically in, in the book of Job. You read Job's story, and Job introduces us to a very interesting theological category. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord take aw- took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it goes on to say, in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. Job ascribed the agency of his distress to God. God was the one who incited Satan to do this to him. And God wasn't wrong to do that. Job is introducing us to the fact that just because God is near and I'm in trouble doesn't mean God's not faithful. God's not, do, God's not sinning against me to let me experience real pain and suffer the consequences of other people's evil towards me even. But even in Job's situation, God's, God dealt with him by shifting his focus. You read to the end of the book, Job 38, 11, this is a very relevant, one of the very relevant things to this passage that God says to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? The earth is where I put it. The ocean, it only comes as far as I tell it to. I, it's, it's, I say, you can come this far and no further. So whatever the earth is doing, whatever the oceans are doing, I'm, I'm there. He shifts the focus from the trouble back to God. That is the goal of this passage. So it is perfectly reasonable for a Christian to not fear in such an insane time where mountains are being chucked in the ocean. And this God who's near, he's not hamstrung, he's not disinterested. He's refuge, strength, help. And in Christ, nothing can separate us from this. Nothing can separate us from what we have in nearness to God. Verses 4 through 7 show us the way God is with us a little bit more clearly. So we've all established that ocean's a terrifying place. You stay as far away as you can from it. But what about a river? I'm all about rivers. Go down to the river, kayaks, fishing poles, rivers. They're both water, but the difference is plain. God relates to his people like a river, a river that flows through a besieged city so that he's nourishing it with its streams. Completely contrasted from the instability of the ocean is a river you can always count on to be flowing in the same direction through your city, sustaining it with peace. We sang about our citizenship in Zion's city. And the river of God is described in uh, Revelation chapter 22, the way that God dwells with his people, the way he really will dwell with his people, with us, that's you and me, us, and all of God's people throughout history. The, the way life is going to be in the city of God is just like Psalm 46 describes. Listen to Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. Leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Here the presence of God, the dwelling place, finally, of God is going to be with man. 
That was his design from the beginning. Remember when God, he made a garden, and then he made a man, and then he stuck the man in the garden, and then he made a woman, and he brought, him, brought her to the man? This is, and they walked with God there. This is where it's supposed to be, and this is where it's going to be in the end. God has promised it. He said so. We can believe this because Christ has guaranteed it to us. One day, the dwelling place of God will be with man. And right now, even, the dwelling place of God, God doesn't live in a, in a temple, in a house that we made. Uh, as we're reminded in, when Jesus says he's going to send the helper, and in Stephen's speech, when he says he doesn't live in the temple anymore, he lives in the hearts of his people. God dwells wherever his people are found, united around his good news. He will help her when the morning dawns. First thing in the morning, the sun is going to come up and reveal the salvation of God. When the morning dawns, the, 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 it chases away the shadows of night. What we're going to find is not that we're surrounded by our enemies, but that God has saved us. The nations and kingdoms are falling apart. They're striving, they're raging, they're, I mean, the, the only thing more instabil, instable than the sea is politics. And we don't have to be afraid of the instability of worldly powers because those worldly powers are powerless, helpless before the awesome battle cry of God. God is an absolute terror to the forces of darkness that threaten his own. God's city is not like the raging nations where there's a new king every other day, where they're conquering one another all the time. God's people are those identified, are identified as those on whom God shows loving favor and protection. I mean, the only re reason I say we and us, our God, the only reason we are a we is because God did something. God called each one of us out of the kingdom of darkness where we were not a people, and he made us a people. So the fact that we're here and we consider ourselves members of a body is a reminder of the truth that God is with us in spite of the instability that we live around, the chaos that is so common. Jesus promised not only to send his gathered people help, but to send the helper, the spirit of God. That's that relational component. We're not saved by a system of redemption, God actually sends us the helper, sends us someone, his own spirit, to live with us and empower us for his mission and make us holy. He's the Holy Spirit. He makes us holier and holier all the time. We're being conformed to the image of God. That's the point of our lives here, is to become more fit citizens of the heavenly kingdom. So, at this point, it's ridiculous to say that God is far off from us in trouble because he's calling Jesus a liar when he says, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. How can we doubt God's willingness to save us when we're only us because we've been saved? We say, oh, God's not going to save me. That's to say that God is suddenly going to stop doing what he's always done from the beginning. Remember in the garden where God made people to dwell with him and enjoy his glory? And how in the end of the world, he's going to dwell with man, enjoying his glory for all eternity? And you're going to say that because of this very real and terrible strife, as bad as it is, that 
God is suddenly hands off now, that he's not anywhere to be found. It doesn't make sense whenever we read what God has said about himself. And this is the truth that you need in your heart already when trouble comes. And I pray that we would all have it. And this present God, he's more terrible than any force of human and natural contrivance. He's more of a threat to us. Outside of Christ, he's more of a threat to us than any ocean, than any flood, than any nation that's powerful on the earth. And he saved us from himself because he's rich in mercy. And he worked together this huge story of redemption that was full of making promises to people that he was going to send his son once and for all to redeem the world and establish his kingdom forever. And now we're members of it. So when we think about ourselves, we can think, if, if we know anything, we know that God's near us. If we know anything about the Bible that teaches us, the fact that we have this Bible, I mean, before you even open it, if you know that this is the word of God, then you know something about God, that he's a God who speaks. He wants to be known. He wants to be with us. It's his intention. This is a profound mystery that God can be so near to us when he feels so far off. That's a real feeling you have. I'm not saying that if you feel like God's far off that you're deluded, but because that's a real feeling that you have. But you've got to interpret that feeling based on what you already know to be true. I already know because God made this promise and he fulfilled this promise to be with us. And I have no reason to doubt that he will be with us. Verse 7 is two more reasons for the co- to be confident in the saving nature of God that he saves us when he's with us. These are war titles. The Lord of hosts is with us. We sing a mighty fortress is our God. The Lord of hosts, his name from age to age the same. The, they used to say, Lord Sabaoth. It, it was the, just a transliteration of the Hebrew word here. That was such a precious truth to the original writers of that hymn that they said the word that means the God of the heavenly armies. The God who is uh, the God of the heavenly armies. The, you might have small caps in your Bible there. That's the Lord, that's Yahweh. That's his name that he gave to his covenant people to address him with. Yahweh of the heavenly armies. And that phrase with us, that's, it's, it's an echo of the principle that God promised about Jesus. We know Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. It's the same word, with us. But this is Yahweh of the heavenly armies with us. This is not a God who is only an idea or only a principle or only a social construct. This is the God who breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He's the one who's with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The one true God who makes and keeps all his promises to a specific people. The God of Jacob. It might sound a little strange to say the God of Jacob is our fortress. But the promises God made to Jacob... Remember what he said to Abraham, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. I'm going to make you a blessing to the whole world. It makes perfect sense for us to claim the God of Jacob as our fortress. Because when we read the way God related to Jacob and Isaac, and the, 
this is, this is our God. This is what he's like. We can read about what he's done for his people and say that's our fortress. Now, a fortress is different from a refuge in that a refuge is what you hide in in the storm. A fortress is a position you defend. A fortress is where you go to fight from. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, fulfills this promise. He says, whenever Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, he says, you're Peter, and on this rock I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. The gates of hell, the gates are a static position, and they're not going to prevail against the advancement of the church. They won't. We're not in retreat. You need to believe this, Rocky Point Baptist Church. You are not in retreat. You are not on the sidelines. And I don't say that because I admire the faith of so many of you for so many years. I don't say that you're not in retreat because you're sending missionaries. I don't say you're not in retreat because you're faithfully attending every week. I say you're not in retreat because the God of the army is with you. That's why you're not in retreat. So you're hurt by one another. You sin against one another. That's a burden. That's a weight. You, your, your pastor is called away. And you still have faithful pastors, but one who led you and cared for you for so long has been called elsewhere. You're, you're not in retreat. The demons check under their bed at night for you when you know for a fact that God is with you. Because... The God who's with you is the God of the heavenly armies. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword, Matthew 10, 34. He's not, he's not coming to make a treaty with the world. He's coming to conquer it. He's overcome the world. And that's the point of 8 through 11 here. Verse 8, come behold the works of the Lord, how he's brought desolations on the earth. We got a command here, and the command is to put our eyes somewhere. This is what we've been talking about. Get our eyes on God in trouble, and that's exactly what we're told to do. When we're told to do something in Scripture, we're expected to obey that. So we don't often think about God cares where our eyes are, and God doesn't just want us to, uh, it, he's not merely saying don't indulge your eyes with sinful things. He's saying don't, when you're in trouble, don't look at your trouble and forget that God's there. Come, behold the works of the Lord. This is what we must, this is what faithful people do in trouble, is that they, they look at the works of the Lord. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Why do you worry about your life? Look at the flowers. Why are you worried about what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat? Look at the birds. Telling us to look somewhere to remember the character of God. And here, we look at God's works to remember what he is like. That our God is not just a, uh, he's, not, he's not like a God that, that, you, that you make with your hands and put up on a pedestal and you have to take care of. He is the God who brings desolations on the earth. He's the God of peace. And he doesn't, look at this, look at, I, I just love verse 9. Look at how God ends war. Look at how God is a threat to people who are fighting. He doesn't say, all right, break it up now, y'all. 
He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, burns the chariots with fire. That is God's response to the raging of the nations. He's not coming in to enter the fray as one of the contenders. He destroys the enemies of his redemptive purposes and triumphed over them in the cross of Jesus Christ. And this knowledge makes us a terror to the forces of darkness in our community. I, we, we, know there are, we know so many bad things about the world around us. We find ourselves fighting against the world and the flesh and the devil against temptation. We, we face conflicting desires in our hearts that give birth to sin. We face physical danger, physical trouble. We face loss. Loved ones die too early. We know there are over 2 billion people in the world that don't even know a Christian yet. We live in a rapidly secularizing culture that has no room for a belief in even the existence of God, much less that God has spoken about things relevant to our lives. And what many people in our community know as Christianity is more of a cultural value of niceness and occasional church attendance. They don't know they might, they might not even know what discipleship really means whenever your loyalties are completely shifted from the world to God and you know peace with him. So how does the truth of Christ's presence and power in our lives as the church shift our focus? Well, it does so right here in verse 10. God shouts from heavens to the raging nations, to the troubling enemy, stop it! Know that I'm God! I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. He's embarrassing them. What, it, this, is, this is like a parent in Dallas traffic, children bickering in the back seat about who did what to who, and you just say, stop it! There's a bigger purpose here. We've got to get home alive. This is God's attitudes towards the little raging nations on the earth that think they're all that and think he's not even there. He says, be still. Know that I'm God. Some translations say, quit your striving. Quit your fighting. Stop it. Know. Know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And people who's, and, and, the, and the church sees our God addressing the world in that way and we say, he's with us. He's our refuge. He's our strength. He's our fortress. God of the heavenly armies. He's with us. And it's his power that we fully anticipate will go with us where we go. You are bad news for the forces of darkness. And you are terrifying to the enemy when you know in your bones that God is with you and you cannot be convinced otherwise. Why else are you so severely tempted to doubt that? If the enemy can get you to believe that God is far off, then you'll quit fighting for him. Nothing causes troops to desert like seeing their general right away from the battle. No, because he knows that they're all about to be annihilated. This is not our God. Our God is in front of us. And he's in us and he's behind us, motivating us, sending us on, clearing the path ahead. We are not in retreat. Hudson Taylor 
a missionary to inland China back in the 1800s, said, all God's giants have been weak men. Weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on his being with them. People did great things for God, not because they were strong. They were, in fact, weak. But they were convinced. They, were, they reckoned on God's being with them. Why, why did Josh go to plant a church? Planting a church is a terrible idea if there's no God. You're sinking all this time and effort and ministry resources and prayer and fasting and just desperately calling out to God to do something. You would never do that if you didn't think God was with you. Why are Jacob and Carol Lee still in Uganda? Because they know that God is at work with them. They're convinced. Now, we all tend to doubt this. We're tempted to doubt it. But we can't. When we crack open our Bibles and we listen to God and we see his character, we behold the works of the Lord. We just have to believe that God is truly with us. Cannot believe otherwise. There's a great illustration of this principle whenever, whenever the church first gets started. Whenever God first fulfills this promise to send the helper and the Holy Spirit comes down and the church explodes, we, we see a story over in Acts chapter 6 of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. This is kind of a bizarre story. If you just like, if you've never read the Bible and you just crack open it, crack it open, and there's Acts six, and you read about Philip. This this uh, this story was shared with me in a new light by uh, a friend who, in, in a Bible study of a bunch of other college students, uh, Mark Boucher was sharing with a bunch of us guys uh, stories of men in the Bible and the great things that they did. And he was telling us about Philip, how. He was, he kind of had a reputation for sharing the gospel. He, he did it in lots of places, in, in Samaria specifically. And one day God said, all right, get up and go down to the road that goes out to the desert and you're gonna, f- and, and you're gonna find a guy in it riding a chariot. And so he, he goes down to the, to the road that goes to the desert and he's out in the middle of nowhere and he finds this Ethiopian eunuch, a, a really important guy who served in the, in the court of the queen of Ethiopia. And he's reading a scroll of the book of Isaiah and uh, Philip says, hey, run alongside the chariot. Hey, you, you, know what, you know what you're reading? And he says, no, how can I know unless someone explains it to me? And so Philip explains the gospel, the good news of Jesus to this guy, and he believes and he baptizes him right there. And then the Holy Spirit picks him up and sends him somewhere else to keep doing what Philip does. And the Ethiopian eunuch goes away, a believer in Jesus Christ, baptized. This, this is a great story of, of the power of God doing something amazing through Philip, telling him to go somewhere to a specific place where he's going to run into this random guy in the middle of nowhere that God had actually orchestrated a specific plan for. And he gives him the wisdom to say what he needs to say in the moment. And then when he's done, the Holy Spirit takes him somewhere else. And Mark asked us, this, asked us a question, and he loved to ask questions because he knew I would always answer. I was that guy in the Bible study Sometimes he would always say what first came to my mind, and Mark loved to. Uh, he, he was an instrument of God to humble me more often than, than this occasion. But he said, all right, what do we know about Philip? Who's Philip? And I said, well, Philip, uh, he's an apostle, right? And he said, nope. And I was like, I'm not used to hearing that whenever I say something. I'm used to being right. 
And he said, no, this is not Philip the Apostle. This is a different Philip. And I was so confused because I just used to being right. And so I said, who, who is this guy? Well, Philip, you read in uh, a couple chapters earlier, Philip's just some guy. He, he's, he's the guy who, uh, whenever the, the, the Greek-speaking Jew, or the Greek-speaking Jews, uh, their widows are being overlooked in the distribution of food, he's one of the guys that get to go wait tables. This is just some guy, some guy whose God was the Lord. This is a Greek table waiter full of the Holy Spirit of God. He's one of God's giants, a weak man who did great things because God was with him. We're not in retreat. God is near us in our trouble. He saves us, and it is his power that we can believe in for our mission. The church is an unstoppable kingdom, sustained by the power and presence of God. His, his spirit dwelling in our hearts and his word that he's revealed to us. But if you are content to live this life according to the worldly values, if you, if you live your life an enemy of Jesus by saying, I, I don't need what he has, then this life is all that there is for you. That, and you are utterly in, undone because there is no refuge from God. If you live as God's enemy, you can fully anticipate that you will be numbered among those terrified of him one day. But I'm telling you that this God, he's not just offering you salvation, he's offering you himself. This is why Jesus came, to destroy the works of the devil in separating man from God, to, to set us free from the power of sin and to actually make us right with God by paying for the debt that we could not. God's desire, his design is to be with his people forever. And so if you do not think that you need to be a part of God's people, or if you think, I, I might not be one of God's people. I've never considered Jesus to be Lord of my life. I've never, I've never seen him to be particularly valuable, worth having, then God extends to you an invitation this very day. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ once and for all, and all of the promises of God will be yours. You will not be spared from trouble. Jesus himself, the one who saves us, he is also the one who said you're going to have trouble in this life. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That is the context he tells us. One last application of this principle comes from Jesus himself. Jesus does not expect us to evangelize the world or our community or even our own families by ourselves. So when he tells us in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, we give this great commission. He says these words, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We get this command, make disciples, baptize, teach, and it's couched in God's authority, his power, and his nearness to us. Jesus does not send us into the world by ourselves to, sh to sh that we're not cannon fodder for the enemy. He's not just sending us out there to get killed. He says, I have all the authority in heaven and on earth, and I'm with you. 
This is the context in which we receive this commission. That is why I am not afraid to train for the work of ministry. That, that is the, the single greatest motivating factor in treating my wife with respect and not being selfish towards her. That's why I bother to share with others the good news of Jesus is because I'm utterly convinced that God is with me. We, we are not expected to do otherwise. Jesus tells us what to do, but he also tells us how we could possibly be expected to do it. Because it's not our power that's doing it. It's the power of God himself. He has all the authority, and he's with us. What a savior we have in Jesus who guarantees Psalm 46 to us. We can sing proudly that our God is a mighty fortress. What a solid truth for a land-dwelling Christian to stand on. The truth that God is a present help in trouble. That he saves his people every time. And that he will always, always, always empower his mission to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, would you put steel in our spines and soften our hearts to this truth. Do not permit fear to grow in the hearts of anyone here. Do not, do not think for one moment. Do not, do not let us think for one moment that you are far off or that our circumstances are saying something more true than what you have said. Don't let us reckon you a liar. May we always, always to the end of the age know that you are God and you are with us. And would you bring us home with this truth on our hearts? Would you spur us into mission? Would you not let us be afraid to do hard things? Hard things in our own homes. Hard things in our community. Hard things in our world. Because we know that you're with us. Write this truth on our hearts. Help us to understand all of its implications to our lives, the little details, the way it affects everything we do. And would you bless this church? Would you bless Rocky Point Baptist Church with an acute awareness that they are not in retreat, that they are a threat to the forces of darkness? We exalt you for all that you have done, all that you have proven to us, and we thank you for showing us what you are like for all of life. In Jesus' name, amen.